invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We've been in a series through this letter, and we continue now picking up in chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 26. Paul has just reminded Timothy of the basic message that he is to cling to, a message of resurrection, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the risen one. And with his eyes fixed upon the risen one, Jesus Christ in heaven, Timothy then is to endure. Timothy then is to be courageous for the sake of the gospel, the good news that he has been entrusted with. And as Timothy was to be courageous, as Timothy was to endure, as Timothy was to teach that word, so too we today are called to that very same thing. Some of us in in an official capacity as a minister of God's word, uh, but all of us as we have been entrusted with God's word, this message, are called to make it known uh, to the world as we have our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And so now Timothy is going to be instructed by the Apostle Paul in terms of how that message ought to be preserved and maintained and the purity of that message kept in the church, a church in which serpents will slither in, a church in which um, people will come in with other words and other sounds uh, distracting from the truth of that gospel. But Timothy is called uh, to deal with such men uh, and also in dealing with them to maintain the purity and the glory and the light of the gospel in the church. And so that's going to be the focus of our sermon today. It's from 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm beginning at verse 14. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearer. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have served, uh, swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And... Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So far from God's holy word, let's pray that he might bless this word to us. Father, we thank you for this instruction given to Timothy long ago and yet relevant for your church today, even for us here at Messiah's Reformed Fellowship. Father, we pray that as we hear this word, that you would give us ears to hear, and that through this word, your church would continue to be guarded and kept in terms of the message that we have been entrusted with. 
May that word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, be so precious to us that we shun every other voice and every other word, and that we would then, recognizing its power and recognizing its beauty, and recognizing that by it we come into fellowship with a living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we would then joyfully proclaim this message to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, on October 31st, we celebrate Reformation Day. Um, it's a day in which we remember uh, the work of the Reformers long ago in the, in the 16th and 17th centuries. And during that time, the reason why we think about that time period and why we even have Reformed in our name, Messiah's Reformed Fellowship, is that it was a significant time when the gospel, the good news that the church had been entrusted with, was recovered. It had been covered over with superstitions. It had been covered over with man-made traditions and, in a sense, lost from the sight of God's people. The comfort that it brought, the power that it had, had been buried under miles and miles of superstitions. And so the Reformers, God raised up such men during that time who would return to the Word of God and who would remove those such superstitions to bring about the purity of God's Word in its preaching. And that word then, because, you know, we might ask, why did they give their lives for this cause? Why did they die to recover God's word and their blood shed for this? Because they believed with the Apostle Paul that the gospel, as given from God, the gospel, the good news, not as made by man or, in, or enhanced by man, but the gospel, pure and simple, as given from God, was indeed the power of God for salvation, right? Paul says just as much in Romans 1 verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's a mighty statement. It's an incredible statement. The good news, a message that we've been entrusted with is the power of God for salvation, to bring people out of darkness into light, to bring them from sin and misery into fellowship with the triune God forevermore. The gospel alone accomplishes that as it's preached and the Spirit of God opens up the hearts of God's people to receive that message and in receiving and believing that message, receiving and believing the person of that message, namely Jesus Christ. And so the reformers fought for such realities. That the gospel, pure and simple, would be recovered as that which is indeed the power of God for salvation. One reformed confession written during this time period and one whose authors, uh, the words of this, of this confession was sealed with the author's own blood, Guido de Bray, in Belgic Confession Article 2, is written this and something that we hold to here at Messiah's Reformed Fellowship. We confess that this word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. Afterwards, our God, because of the special care he has for us and for our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit this word, this revealed word, to writing. We have this Bible, we have the Word of God as a token of God's care and His love for us and for our salvation. Do not take it lightly that we have such easy access to God's Word and that we possess God's Word. But instead, as we reflect upon having God's Word, we ought to be reminded of the heart of God for His church. 
out of special care for us and for our salvation, he commanded that this word be written down. And the very same word that the Apostle Paul entrusted Timothy with is the very same word we are entrusted with today. And that word then is meant to be for us what we hold most dear to. So that any other voice, any other word that comes contrary to this word, we recognize it as such. We recognize that that word is not the power of God for salvation and we reject it. And that's what Timothy, as we mentioned earlier, is to guard against in the church. And so as we think about this chapter, we see that within the church, there's two parties. Within the church, the visible church of God on earth, there are two parties, serpents and servants. Serpents and servants. And we're going to think about those two things, uh, those two parties within the church and Timothy's responsibility. And between the serpents and the servants are a sure promise from God. And so those are going to be our three points. The serpents, the sure promise, and the servants of God. As we think about our calling, even today, to maintain the purity of the gospel, to prize and love this word as it brings us into fellowship with the living God. So first, serpents. An interesting question to think about. What destroys the church? Of Jesus Christ. What can destroy the church of Jesus Christ? Well, it's interesting that Paul earlier spoke about himself as a herald of this message, and as a herald of this message, he was in chains. And you might say, well, do chains, do chaining up, locking up, the messengers of this gospel destroy the church that is founded upon this word? And Paul would say, no. The word of God is not bound. I might be bound, but the word of God is not. It's not persecution or suffering or chains that destroys the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, those things often lead to the prospering of God's church in this world. What destroys the church of Jesus Christ? Well, it's what Paul warns Timothy against in in, in these verses that we had just considered. What destroys the church, what, what leads to the destruction of the church is not persecution, But rather, it is the corruption of the word. It is the corruption of the word that enters the church like a cancer, like a malignant tumor that comes in and grows and spreads and kills. The focus that Timothy is to have and that Paul gives to him is one in which which he recognizes that the health of the church, the, the, the prosperity of the church is found in the word being maintained, purely preached, purely held to, and not confused or disrupted by or confounded by the words of any man. And that is why Timothy is to be warned against such serpents from slithering into the church. And I use that language, you know, Paul doesn't speak of serpents directly here, but I use that language because what Paul is warning Timothy about actually happened already long ago. It happened in the garden. The garden was the place, was God's realm, a holy realm where God met with his people like the church is today. A holy place, a temple where God meets with his people. And into that holy realm, the garden in the beginning, a serpent slithered in. And the serpent didn't come with poison to kill Adam and Eve, but he came with twisting words and serpentine-like deception. He came with a forked tongue Did God really say? He brought God's word into question. He brought God's word into disrepute. He brought God's word 
before man as if he could stand over it as judge. And what Paul is seeing is that that very same event is, is, is repeating itself and will continue to repeat itself until Christ comes again and the serpent himself is cast into the burning lake of fire. Until that day, the church must be on guard against serpents slithering in, twisting and corrupting the word of God as we have been entrusted with it. And so Timothy, like a priest in the temple or like Adam was to do in the garden, is to crush such serpents. Now, not physically. I mean, Timothy is not to engage in physical warfare. Uh, Timothy himself, in correcting his opponents, is to do so with gentleness. But Timothy is to correct, and Timothy is to oppose such serpents in the church. This is part of his role as a guardian of God's temple, the church, the place where God dwells with his people. And so Timothy is then to guard against the twisting and the corrupting of God's word. And and Paul speaks of this in three ways in these opening verses here, verses 14 through uh, 17. He speaks about it in three ways. They kind of overlap, so we're not going to spend time dissecting it in in the minutiae of it. But notice what Paul says. He, He reminds Timothy to be on guard by telling him what they will do and what the effect of their words will be. What they will do what they are going to say, and then also the effect of what they say on the church. And these are things that we need to heed and to recognize, again, that right, Paul is soon to depart. And out of all the dangers he saw the church facing, the one thing that he highlights, because he sees it as the most dangerous, because it is the most deceptive tactic of Satan himself, is deception in the church. It's to deceive and corrupt and twist God's word. And this is what we need to be on guard as well about. Right? This is something we need to take seriously. And it's always been Satan's tactic. It's always been his trick to cause the church to relegate God's word to the peripheries and eventually to forget God's word. We've been studying uh, Machen's Christianity and liberalism in our book study. And this is what took place 100 years ago with liberalism, theological liberalism. It rejected the word of God as the word of God. It said this is not the inspired word of God. This is not inerrant and infallible. And therefore, the word of God, because it was no longer the word of God, was subjected to man. And we could dissect it and take things out of it and read it however we might like. This was the project of modern theological liberalism that abides with us today. But as the people of God, our lives are centered around this word because this word And by this word, we have fellowship with the triune God, our God. And so Paul is emphasizing then Timothy's role and our responsibility today to guard the purity of the word. Brothers and sisters, guard the purity of God's word. It is your life. Notice what he says again in terms of what and also the effect of that. First he says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. He says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene or like a cancer. He says, Hymenaeus and Philetus swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. You see the movement back and forth. This is what's happening, and this is the effect of that. 
In each of these cases, whether it's quarreling about words, irreverent babble, or swerving from the truth by denying the central tenet of the resurrection, Paul is saying that all of those things ruins the hearers, leads to ungodliness, spreads like a cancer, and upsets the faith of some. This is a serious matter that Paul wants the church to know. Timothy is to be on guard about this reality. We're not to quarrel about words. Now, of course, Paul is not here saying that we ought then to be sort of vague in our language and not worry about how things are stated. But rather, he's saying that we are to avoid quarrels arising from um, these, uh, really these um, endless genealogies and myths and wives' tales that were coming in to corrupt and add to God's word. Uh, Timothy is warned against such things in the previous letter, 1 Timothy, that Paul wrote to him. They're to avoid such words uh, that merely lead to argument and dispute rather than the simple meaning of God's word. Keep in mind that Timothy himself, before he actually receives this letter, didn't have 2 Timothy and the New Testament itself hadn't yet been written down for them. And so you had voices and people speaking all over the place. And and really, Paul is saying, don't quarrel about words, such words that are contrary to the apostolic word that you have received. And for us, one that has been written down. Now, yes, there's debate over certain passages between churches. There's a reason there's Anglicans and Baptists and Lutherans and Reformed and so on. Yet we can recognize a common brotherhood in Christ. We can recognize the same um, gospel that we believe, ultimately, though we might have differences on points. Paul's not talking about those differences. He's talking about such words that would lead astray from the central message of Jesus Christ, such as Philetus and Hymenaeus were saying that the resurrection had already taken place. Now, the resurrection was at the heart of this whole letter in Timothy's ministry, right? The whole letter began when, when Paul said to Timothy, opening up the letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. It's a reference to the resurrection. Jesus, as raised from the dead, possesses life, and it's found in him. Or he says later in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, verse of chapter 2, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And that very reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, defines our lives today, right? Because it says if we died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. The link between those clauses, dying and living, enduring and reigning, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you have Hymenaeus and Philetus coming along and saying it's already taken place. Now you might say, well, where did they get that idea from? Well, possibly from early Greek thought that downplayed the value of the body. And so they saw it merely as a spiritual resurrection. They also knew Paul, who had spoken in other letters, had told the church that you've already been raised. And there is a sense in which the believer, you yourself, if you have trusted in Christ, are already raised. Right? Paul says to the Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ. And so likely these men were misinterpreting and twisting Paul's words to say that though spiritually God's people have been raised today, there is no bodily resurrection, is what Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying. But Paul is reminding the church that a bodily resurrection indeed does await them. It's why we can endure. It's why we can endure and suffer for the sake of the gospel. And our bodies could be thrown to the lions or could be 
brought to the flames. Because we look forward to the resurrection of the body when Christ comes again. But Hymenaeus and Philetus are swerving from the truth. They are bringing in, uh, they're quarreling about words. And these things ruin the hearers, lead to ungodliness, and spread like a gangrene, like a cancer. And so Paul is telling Timothy then that he needs to crush such serpents, to not let such work and such words live and operate in the church. Those words will have an effect. Those words will lead somewhere. They're not neutral. They're not safe. Paul is to rid the church, and Timothy is to rid the church of such words. And so these are the serpents that Timothy is to guard the people of God against. It's the serpents that your pastor, your elders are called to guard this church against as well. And But again, that responsibility isn't just on your pastor and just, and just on your elders, but it is upon all of us to love God's word. You know, how do you fight ultimately for the truth of God's word? What, what motivates, what moves Timothy and Paul and others? It's a positive view of what that word is. It's a positive view that this word is true. This word is the power of God. And this word brings me into fellowship with my God. Therefore, I will do everything to stand for this truth and I will build my life upon it. That is what Timothy is to do. And therefore, when any serpent slithers in, that word must be dealt with. That word must be removed from his church. And when that word is not removed, well, you see the effects all around us in churches where the gospel was once preached is no longer. See, churches all around us in the city. There's plenty of churches here. It's a very religious city in some regard. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not preached in many of them, if not in most of them. And it's such a sad reality. But that is the effect that Paul is warning Timothy against. And therefore, Timothy is to guard and we are to guard the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ against such serpents. Now you might say, okay, in the midst of you know, these enemies coming in and, and, and Satan himself doing his work, and notice what it says at the very end of the, our passage we read, speaking of these men, these serpents who are coming in, saying that they have been ensnared by the devil, being captured by him to do his will, right? This is Satan himself opposed to the church. This is the spiritual warfare that the church finds herself in today. And in the midst of such great and powerful enemies who would corrupt God's word, in the, in the midst of great enemies greater than us, who would seek to lead God's people astray and deviate from this word, we might worry about the future of this church. Tim, uh, Paul himself was soon to depart in death as he recognized at the end of this letter. Should Paul worry that the church is not going to be around any longer? Will the deceptions and the lies at, at some point snuff out the truth and completely rid the world of the gospel, the good news? Well, Paul gives us in our second point a sure promise. A sure promise that in the midst of these enemies, God will maintain his church. God will uphold his church. Notice what he says in verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. There's debate over what is this firm foundation. Some have said it's the gospel itself. Some have said that it's the apostles and others the church. I, I tend to think of this as the church itself, the foundation, the building that God has laid. 
We're reminded of Jesus' words in that regard in Matthew 16, verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Paul is saying that the church is not the product of human hands. The church is not the effort of man, but it's the effort of God. And if it's God's work, it is sure. If it is God's work, then come what may, every force of hell itself opposed to the church, it will stand. God's strength will uphold the church no matter what. It is established upon God's unchanging, immovable bedrock of his predestinating love for his people. And we are, therefore, well-founded. We, Messiah's Reformed Fellowship, as a church in which the gospel is taught and preached, are well-founded upon the fact that, Jesus, that God is the one who has established us. And Paul gives us great comfort in this reality. He not only reminds us that God's foundation, that this is God's foundation, but also that he has sealed it. He built it and he sealed it. And this seal is meant to bring us great comfort. A seal served a lot of functions, um, especially in Paul's day. It it served to protect because it it reflected the authority of the one who placed the seal upon it. Think of when Jesus is um, put in the tomb and the stone is rolled and the seal is put upon it. It's to signify the king's, uh, the Caesar's authority over that uh, stone that it might not be rolled back. Now, we see a greater authority working in that story to overturn even Caesar. Um, But the seal was meant to indicate authority. And so it warned against tampering. It warned against messing with this that belonged to the king. God has sealed his church, which stands as a warning to the world, to serpents, but a comfort for us, God's people. A seal also indicated ownership. In the Song of Solomon, in chapter 8, verse 6, we see uh, the, the, the um, husband speaking, uh, the wife speaking to her husband, set me as a seal upon thy heart. It was a, a sense of ownership, of submitting oneself. And so a seal marked not only authority and protection, but also ownership. It's God's church. It's God's people. It's why we can confess God is our God. We are his people. He has sealed us. We belong to him. And not only does it protect, not only does it indicate ownership, but it also guarantees and certifies what God has promised, right? A seal um, provides a, a certification to say that what has been said is genuine and true and reliable. God the Father then protects us as he has sealed us so that none of his people are lost. God the Son owns us as he has sealed us and bought us with his precious blood, God the Holy Spirit guarantees and certifies that we are indeed sons of God. What God has said about us as the church is indeed true. It's been sealed. But the question is, how then do we experience the comfort of that seal, right? How do we know the comfort and experience the comfort of the fact that God has sealed his church? Well, notice that Paul doesn't just tell us that God has put his seal upon the church, but he tells us what is written on that seal. And we experience the comfort of that seal by taking to heart, by believing what has been written, what God has said, how God has sealed us. And there's two things here, a promise and an obligation in this seal. And notice what it says at the end of verse 19. 
It's a dual, a double seal, a, two, a two-sided coin in a sense. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. A promise and an obligation. And it begins with God's promise. The Lord knows those who are his. Now there's some fascinating background uh, to these to this seal. And it draws back, we won't go there for the sake of time, but in your spare time this, this afternoon, you can read Numbers 16, Numbers chapter 16. And in Numbers 16, Coram, Datham, and Abiram were these serpents that rose up in Israel. They weren't actually serpents, but they did the devil's bidding by opposing Moses. Moses was the Lord's servant. Moses spoke with God and he relayed God's word to the people, right? As he went up the mountain, he brought God's word down. He would enter the tent of meeting, see God face to face. He would come out and bring God's word to his people. But Coram, Dathan, and Abiram opposed Moses. And, and um, within this story, in Numbers chapter 16, God ends up judging Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and, and everybody who followed after them by supernaturally splitting open the earth and consuming them within it. The Lord knows those who are his. You see, the point here is that in the midst of a, of a mixed company of, of servants and serpents, of um, believers and hypocrites, right? in the midst of all of that, God knows those who are his. And therefore, when God judged Coram, Datham, and Abihu, Abiram, and those who followed them, God did not consume the entire people of God, the nation of Israel. But instead, he, he punished specifically those who were not his own, who had rebelled against him. And so God has sealed his church with this fact that the Lord also knows those who are his. He's, um, he's mindful of his people, even in the midst of those who would corrupt God's word, even in the midst of those who would lead God's people astray, God is aware and knows those who are his. And therefore, he keeps them and he guards them. And then this reality then calls God's people then, as it says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, right? As God's promise has sealed the church, so now the church is to now live a life of reliance upon God, a life that is consecrated to God's glory so that our confession and our belief exemplifies itself, demonstrates itself in a holy walk and conduct, right? God knows those who are his. He knows you. Therefore, name the name of the Lord and depart from iniquity. Consecrate yourself to the Lord. And Paul is reminding us that this seal has been given to us, a sure promise that though the church may be opposed Yet God's foundation will remain. And this leads us then, finally, to our third point, servants, right? As Timothy is to guard against serpents, he's then to positively serve God's church as the Lord's servant. And we see this in verses 20 through 26. And Paul, in verses 20 and 21, gives us this analogy or this metaphor for the church as a great house, a house in which there are different kinds of vessels and instruments and um, furnishings, some of gold and silver, some of wood, and so on, some more honorable and some dishonorable. And he reminds us that the church is filled at present with true believers and also with hypocrites. 
Now, this reality does not mean, this reality that the church, a visible church on earth, is filled with believers and hypocrites does not mean that we ought then to be skeptical of one another. It it does not mean that we are to be hypocrite searchers in trying to discern the hearts of God's people. Rather, our judgment to one another still ought to be one of charity. And this has always been the Reformed position and the way the life in the Reformed church has operated. Canons of Dort put it this way, saying that, Following the examples of the apostles, and think of the apostle Paul writing to Corinth, right? Um, It's kind of the example of like the messed up, uh, ungodly church in which they had to repent of much. And yet Paul can write to Corinth to the saints in Corinth. Paul did not stand over them in judgment. Paul called called them uh, to repentance. Paul called them to change their ways but he could still recognize them as saints. And so following the example of the apostles, we are to think and to speak in the most favorable way about those who outwardly profess their faith and better their lives for the inner chambers of the heart are unknown to us. And we've made this point before, and it's not the main focus of this text here, but let me just remind you of this, that when we do try to judge the motives and the hearts of God's people, and we question them and are skeptical despite their outward profession of faith, we assume the prerogative of God to them. We assume as if we are God because it is as if we can know the inner chambers of the heart. But we don't. They're unknown to us, and therefore we are to speak in the most favorable way about those who outwardly profess their faith and better their lives, right? And so what Paul is writing here is not meant to lead us to be skeptical towards one another, questioning one another, but rather he's reminding us of this reality that there are those in the church, and this could sound offensive, but Paul's writing it here, where there is indeed useful people in the church and less useful people in the church. Now, The world may judge what's useful and what's useless in different terms. Paul reminds us that what seems useless and what seems weak and what seems um, less um, glamorous is actually the most vital and important for the church, right? So there's a lot of principles here to keep in mind. But Paul is reminding us that within the church, there are those who are useful and those who may not be useful. And so he says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a useful, a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so, brothers and sisters, let us pursue usefulness in the church. Let us pursue usefulness for, for our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who, is, who has brought us into his household, who has given us his word. And so what does that look like then, a useful, uh, useful living? Well, Paul goes on to describe that in verses 22 through 26 in terms of the Lord's servant, the Lord's servant. What is the Lord's servant to be like? What is he to pursue? What is he to do? Well, Paul lays out a host of things that the Lord's servant ought to pursue. But the first thing to keep in mind about this servant is that he is indeed the Lord's servant. He is the servant of the Lord. And therefore, all that he's called to do is to reflect his Lord is to reflect Jesus Christ. Right? Everything Paul calls Timothy to do here is a life imitating the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whose servant he is. And so too for God's people. Right? Our lives as, as servants of the Lord 
are those then who are called to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ and to show that we are his disciples, that we indeed are members of his household. And his household is not one in which uh, anything goes, but a household in which he directs us and guides us and governs us by his word and by his spirit. We are the Lord's servants. Now, keep in mind this phrase, the Lord's servant, is often a technical phrase throughout the Bible for one called specifically and set apart for the ministry of God. Uh, so in, in the most direct sense, he's speaking to Timothy. He's speaking to ministers and elders of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But again, these things are not only for the minister or the elder. It's for also all God's people as servants of the Lord, to be like him, to be like him who pursued righteousness and love and peace, to be like him who was able to teach, to be like him who corrected his opponents with gentleness and so on. So what are some of these things then that ought to define the Lord's servant in the church? Well, first, going back to uh, verse um, going back to verse uh, 15, the Lord's servant is to rightly divide God's word. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling or dividing the word of truth. The Lord's servant is not one who lords over God's people but serves God's people. The Lord's servant has authority, but his authority is not magisterial, but ministerial. As the word is preached, that word is ministered to God's people. No pastor has magisterial authority over his church to decree whatever he would like, to do whatever he would like, or to make you do what he would like. But rather, he has ministerial authority as he ministers God's word to you. And that's what Paul is speaking about, first and foremost, about the Lord's servant. He ministers God's word rightly, straightly, without deviating from it. He rightly divides, he rightly handles the word of truth. And that word of truth stands in opposition to what we've talked earlier about the serpents, their irreverent babble, their idle talk, their quarreling over words. No, the Lord's servant rightly handles the word of truth. Secondly, the Lord's servant then, as Paul says in verse 22, is to flee youthful passions. This, of course, could mean sensual desires. That may be true of young people. Uh, but it also may have, be in, have in mind such wrong pursuits as um, misplaced ambition, um, impatience, right? This, this, this rage, uh, this anger that could overtake youth and, though, of course, older people as well. But in all of these things, Timothy is to flee such things and pursue positively righteousness, a state of heart and mind in harmony with God and his, and his word. He's to pursue faith as a humble confidence and trust in his God. He's to pursue love, a deep personal affection for God and, and for his people, a love for the brothers, a love for the sisters, a love for the family of God and the household of God. Pursue that. He's to pursue peace. Not to be one who pursues quarrels and fights and one who seeks to be provocative all the time. But he's to pursue peace. And you see this, you know, the, the, the need for this all the more in our own day. 
as these things have been amplified and intensified by the internet. I'm all for the internet. But the internet is fueled with pastors who are mere provocateurs. Pastors who merely seek to disturb the peace rather than those who pursue peace and pursue understanding. The internet could be an absolute swamp for theology. Now, there's also good stuff. I'm not opposed to that. Ligonier, Reform Forum, other organizations that have wonderful material for you to read. But be, be, on, be on your guard against those personalities that create interest because they provoke. They create interest because they disturb the peace, who create interest in order to often benefit themselves and to fatten their own wallets. And therefore, let us be on guard against such people who claim to be the Lord's servants. The Lord's servant pursues peace. He pursues righteousness. He pursues love. He pursues faith. These are the things that mark God's servant. Goes on to say that he does so with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The Lord's servant then does not operate in isolation, but he comes together in fellowship and in communion with God's people, pursuing these things together, pursuing them with one another. The Lord's servant, Paul goes on to say, is to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Not just those of the household of faith, but even those who are his enemies. Kindness marks him. He's able to teach. He's able um, to patiently endure evil and correct his opponents with gentleness. Now, something to keep in mind, is this the kind of servant you want? I think so often, right, we look to the political world, right, we want somebody who is big, and we want somebody who's going to call people out. We want somebody who's going to be mean. We want somebody who's going to stand up. And often we impose that same desire into the church. We, we want a figure who is going not to be kind but mean, one who is not going to patiently endure evil but attack it, not one who's going to correct his opponents with gentleness but one who's going to humiliate his opponents, right? We can often import those things. I'm not saying we have, but it, again, be on guard against doing so. God's servant, the one he has set up for his church, is to pursue kindness to everyone, patience in enduring evil, and he does correct his opponents with gentleness. And again, in all of these ways, he's reflecting his master. He's reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's these things that you ought to hold me, your elders, your pastors accountable to in God's word. To be kind to everyone. To do these things. To carry out the work as Paul has laid it out for us here. And the reason we're to do this in, in emulating, uh, um, imitating Christ, emulating Christ as well, is that God, as Paul says in the middle of verse 25, may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. You see, the Lord's servants, right, as he pursues faith and love and peace, as he rightly handles God's word, as he corrects his opponents with gentleness, as, as he engages in all of these activities, his aim is for salvation. Right? That, that's Paul's point here. You engage in these things because through them, God may bring such a person 
to repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And so as Paul warns Timothy of the greatness of this danger, he's, he's reminding Timothy that, that the greatness of this danger ought not to lead you into handling this your own way. You are the Lord's servant. Handle it the way he has given you and instructed you to handle it. And as you do so, do so with your eye upon this goal that God may grant them repentance. You can't bring about repentance. You, your words cannot bring about repentance, but God can. And God may use his servant towards that end of leading those who were um, caught up in irreverent babble, those who were caught up in quarreling about words, those who swerved from the truth like Hymenaeus and Philetus. He may lead such people to repentance, to a knowledge of the truth, that they come to their senses, escaping from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so we've seen, as we come to a conclusion here, we've seen that in the church, there are serpents and there are servants. And God's ministers and God's people are called to be servants who love God's word, who love God's word because by this word we have fellowship with our God. We know him. We have communion with him. He speaks to us in this word clearly, plainly. And therefore, any and all voices that would come in to corrupt this word, to lead us away from this word, to distort or twist this word, we ought to reject and remove. And as we, do, we are to do so in such a way that God's name is honored, that we show ourselves to be the Lord's servants. And the reason we do this is for the fellowship and for the glory of God's name, but also that salvation might come to those who need it. Salvation might come as this word is maintained in its purity, as this word is preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And therefore, brothers and sisters, as we hear this word from the Apostle Paul, it's not just a word for long ago. These were problems then. These were things to be on guard against then. No, these are things to be on guard today and for us to pursue today. Let us put together with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart, let us together pursue righteousness. Let us pursue faith, love, and peace as we bring a message of peace to the world around us. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have laid your church as a sure foundation. Father, we thank you that though it is opposed on many sides and from forces greater and stronger than ourselves, yet we have this sure promise that you have placed your seal upon us. You know us. You know those who are yours. And therefore, may we who call upon your name consecrate our lives wholly and fully to your glory. And may we live and operate truly as your servants, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who was meek and lowly and gentle, one who corrected his opponents with kindness, and one who was able to teach one who loved you with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. May we too desire that more and more. And from that desire, may your word then be precious to us as in this word we hear your voice, the voice that is for us life, even eternal life. And so, Father, maintain for the sake of Christ the purity of your word here and bless us as we proclaim that word. May we rightly understand and know and divide that word may be rightly divided Sunday after Sunday from this pulpit for years and generations to come that the truth of the gospel might be known and loved and believed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.